This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ's power and love. And praise the Lord for that. Open your Bibles to Isaiah 57 this morning. Isaiah 57, we're talking about taking refuge in God, and we're going to look at uh, verses 14 through 21 this morning. Isaiah 57, and so keep your Bibles open or your tablet or whatever you're using uh, for your your Bible. I'll, I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB, and so our primary text from Isaiah 57 will not be on screen, so follow along in your your Bibles, and we'll have cross-references and things on screen for you. But let's look at verses 14 through 21, taking refuge in God. He said, build it up, build it up, prepare the way, remove every obstacle from my people's way. For the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, says this, I live in a high and holy place and with the oppressed and lowly of spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the oppressed. For I will not accuse you forever and I will not always be angry for then the spirit would grow weak before me, even the breath which I have made. Because of his sinful greed, I was angry, so I struck him. I was angry and hid. But he went on turning his back to the desires of his heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating words of praise. The Lord says, peace, peace to the one who is far or near, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the storm-tossed sea, for it cannot be still when its water churns up mire and muck. There is no peace for the wicked, says my God. Father, we know that peace is only to be found in you. And so we pray that you would give us the grace to flee to you this morning. And, and there discover the peace that you give, the, the, the life that you give. Lord, your word says that you revive the the heart of the lowly. Lord, may we humble ourselves before you right now that we can receive the life, the fullness of life that is found in, in, in Jesus. Lord, we know that you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. And we pray that you would humble our hearts right now as we place ourselves beneath your word. And we pray that your spirit would work through your word in, in deep, transforming ways today for your glory's sake. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One summer night in 1939, the 937 passengers on board a ship called the St. Louis came to the, the, the railing of their ship and they could look out over the, the glistening water and they could see the lights of Miami in the distance. And, and the people on the ship were Jewish refugees. They were, they were fleeing Nazi Germany. Ever since 1933, when Hitler had come to power in Germany, month by month, year by year, the, the persecution of Jews in Germany had just tightened and grown more intense. 
And just a few months prior to this, in November of, of 1938, was Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass when synagogues across Germany were burned to the ground. It was a night when Jewish businesses were destroyed and where Jewish people were beaten on the streets of, of, of Germany. And at that point, that was the last straw for many Jewish people in Germany. And so they, they, they immediately began to, 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 to seek places where they could flee as refugees. But what, what the problem was that no country wanted them. And the people who were on this particular ship thought that they were going to get refuge in, in Cuba of all places, and they had purchased Cuban visas while they were still in Germany, and so they were thinking they were going to be received there. But when they got off the coast of, of Havana, the Cuban authorities said, we've changed our minds, you're not coming in. And so at that point, the St. Louis turned north toward America, toward Florida. And so here they were on this night so close to an American city. I mean, there was the lights of Miami were glittering in the distance. They were so close and yet so far because our, our government also denied them entry. And at that point, there was nothing left to do but for the ship to turn around and to head back to Europe where a third of the people on board that ship would be murdered in the Holocaust and many, many others would be tortured in concentration camps. Not our nation's finest, finest moment, obviously. They, these, people, these people fled, they sought refuge. They, they sought refuge that was, that was denied them, which is especially hard to contemplate, you know, when you think about all of the biblical commands, just tons of biblical commands about showing compassion for such people, showing compassion for refugees. And even Jesus and his family uh, had to flee as refugees when he was still a, a, a baby. But these people fled and they were denied refuge. That will never happen with God. It will never happen with God. If you, if you look in Isaiah 57 at the end of verse 13, which leads into verses 14 through 21, God says there at the end of verse 13, but whoever takes refuge in me will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. Now verses 14 through 21 unpack that. They're about what taking refuge in God looks like. He will never, never deny that to you. But what does it look like when we take refuge in him? What does that involve? Well, the first thing that we see here in verse 14 is about removing the obstacles. Removing the obstacles. And right off the, the top, you need to understand this. If there are obstacles that are in the way of you taking refuge from God, they are not obstacles that God put there. <laughs> they are, they are self-made obstacles that we have put in the way that need to be dealt with. God does not put any in our way. He invites us to come. Look at verse 14. He said, build it up, build it up, prepare the way, remove every obstacle from my people's way. Now the image here in verse 14 comes from road building. 
It's, uh, it, the, the image here is of a, of a, a raised up road. You know, a, a, a road that is built up, it's raised so that there are, are, are no encumbrance, encumbrances, uh, d- debris or anything, anything that could be an obstacle. This road has been raised up, built up, so it is just a straight shot, wide open road, like an open highway. Americans have a fascination with, with, with highways. Uh, old Route 66 was kind of a, that was sort of a, 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 a myth, taken on, the, taken on the mythological status, really. That was a, a road that ran from Chicago uh, to Los Angeles, to the, to, the, to, the, to the ocean. Some years ago, I had, a, had meetings in, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and so Central Avenue in Albuquerque was part of old Route 66, and so you can still see a lot of those old kitschy signs, <laughs> motel signs and restaurant signs from the 50s and 60s where travelers on Route 66 would, were invited to, to stop. And um, just in January of, of last year, I had IMB trustee meetings in, in, in California, and so I had taken Courtney with me on that trip, so we were able to go to Santa Monica Pier, which was the ending point of Old Route 66, and have our picture taken there by the sign that this is where the, the highway ends. Well, Route 66 is long since in the past, and it's been replaced by interstates, which are supposed to be more open and faster but it doesn't always work out that way. So when Melissa and I were going down to Charleston a couple of weeks ago on I-95 South, we actually had to get off of the interstate in order to make better time because there was so much traffic and so many obstacles on the interstate. But in Isaiah's time, any kind of road was an incredible blessing because there were so few of them. But this is not just any road that he's talking about here in verse 14. This is a wide open road. This is a road that has been built up and raised. So it is perfect for travel. No encumbrances, just wide open. You can just go. Now, the travel motif that we see here goes along with the theming in Isaiah, because one of the themes that we're seeing in Isaiah is that these people were, were going to be, repu- uh, they're going to be exiles in the future in Babylon. And so part of this prophecy is that Isaiah is prophesying that the exile is going to happen, but then restoration is going to happen. You're, you're going to be able to return to the promised land. And so, what were they? They were going to have to travel in order to do that. They were going to have to. They were going to have to hit the, the, the road to do that to, to come to come home. But Isaiah knew that if if they returned to the land without returning to the Lord, then that was going to end in disaster. And, and he knew that there were there were things that were clogging their way back to God. There were obstacles that, that, that needed to be removed and this involved repentance. Are there things that are hindering your relationship with God? Are there obstacles that you have put in the way that are, that are clogging the, the way back to him? What, what is it that needs to be dealt with? That involves repentance. But we often misunderstand what repentance is. 
Because a lot of times when we think of repentance, we think about getting our act together so that we can come back to God. Let me tell you, there, 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 there is no getting our act together apart from God. <laughs> so we gotta come to him first. First of all, we, we come to God. And then God, by the power of the Spirit, takes care of those obstacles. We have to come to him. That's your step. It's just simply to take the steps toward God. Now, that's what we see in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, right? Because you've got this guy who has gone away from his father, and he's gone into the distant land, and he's engaging in this life of sin and so forth. And eventually, he repents, and he starts moving back toward the father's house. But what happens before he moves, starts moving back? He comes to himself. He says he came to himself, right? That's what repentance is. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of action. You get sick and tired of being sick and tired. And you begin to mourn your sin instead of loving your sin. And you change your mind about that. And that change of mind leads to a change of action. And when that happens, you just start moving toward God. You just move toward God. This is not a matter of you kind of turning over a new leaf first and you kind of cleaning things up first before you come. No, just come. Just come. Just move toward God. And, and, and whatever wreckage or debris or obstacles you have put there, what you're going to see is that you, as you move toward him, you're going to see the supernatural hand of God just clearing the way. Your role is just to come. Just come. Removing the obstacle, second, trusting in God's character and promises. Trusting in God's character and promises. Let's look at verse 15. For the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, says this, I live in a high and holy place and with the oppressed and lowly of spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the oppressed. Now here in verse 15, we see some mind-blowing things about God. First of all, we see that God is, is utterly transcendent. He is the high and exalted one. God is not a part of creation. He is the creator. And, and then we see that God is eternal. He lives forever. And then we see that God is holy that he is totally pure and, and utterly set apart from, from, from sin. So God is, is utterly transcendent, holy, eternal, lives in a, in a, in a he's, he's a high and exalted one, and yet, here's the second thing that we see about him, he comes to be with us. It says that the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, says this, I live in a high and holy place and with the oppressed and lowly of spirit. He came to us. John 1.14 says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw earlier in Isaiah, the prophecy in Isaiah 7, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive and have a son and name him Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. 
And so he comes, he comes to, to be with us. And then the third thing that we see is that he comes to give life. He comes to revive, to, to revive the, the, the heart of the oppressed and the, and, 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 and the lowly. Now we see this over and over again in the ministry of Jesus, right? We see in the gospels that he's coming to people that were outsiders and outcasts like we saw last week. And we also see though that people that were kind of insiders, <laughs> you know, that uh, either religiously or economically or whatever, people like Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus, people like that, 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 that humble them, they became lowly. They became lowly because they became poor in spirit. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. They, they humbled themselves so that, that they could see the, the, the beauty and receive the, the blessings of, of Christ and they became his followers. So he comes to the lowly. He, he, comes, he, comes, to the, he comes to the humble. Uh, Ray Ortland says this, where is God? In two places. He dwells in the high and holy place where we can't go and he dwells among the lowly and contrite where we can go. So the way to find God is obvious. Humble yourself and he'll find you. Look at verse 16. God says, for I will not accuse you forever and I will not always be angry. For then the spirit would grow weak before me, even the breath which I have, have made. Listen, if, if God were to remain angry with us because of our sins, we would have no chance. We would just simply melt away. But here's what we need to understand about God and his character. God becomes angry, but God is love. God becomes angry, but he is love. He becomes angry, but, 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 but anger is not an essential part of his nature. But 1 John tells us that God is love. That is his character. And even his anger, we so often misunderstand because we equate it with human anger. But it's not like human anger. God doesn't lose his temper. God doesn't lose control. He doesn't fly off the handle. God's anger is his righteous revulsion against sin. It's, his right, it's an expression of his righteousness, which we should understand. We should be able to understand it because we demand it of our court system all the time. If we perceive that judges or juries are, are not punishing the guilty, you know, we're, we're outraged by that kind of thing. We, we expect judges to do right. Should we expect anything less from God? Of course not. Of course not. God can't wink at sin. God can't just sweep it beneath the rug. It has to be dealt with. And it could have been dealt with by us paying the penalty for it forever in hell. For us receiving the, the condemnation that was due to us for all of our rebellion and sin against him. But in his love, what does God do? We saw it in chapter 53, right? God sends his son God sends us the servant to suffer in our place, to take the judgment that we deserve, to take the punishment that we deserve. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him, the servant, Christ, for the iniquity of us all. That's how it's dealt with. Verse 17, because of his sinful greed, he's talking about human beings here, because of his sinful greed, I was angry, so I struck him. 
I was angry and hid, but he went on turning back to the desires of his heart. Now listen, verse 17 is the story of the whole Old Testament, right? This is the pattern that you see in the Old Testament over and over and over and over and over. God is, God is so good to people, provides for them, and they respond by doing what? Turning their backs on him, rebelling against him, worshiping idols, sinning. So they begin to reap the consequences of that. They begin to suffer the pain of that. God disciplines for them. That's what it means when he says he's, he struck them, right? They, 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 experience, they experience God's discipline because of their own choices, their own sinful actions. And then when that happens, when they begin to feel the pain of that, it seems like they, 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 turn, to the, they turn to the Lord again, but, it's, but it's, it has no depth. It's just shallow. It doesn't last. They go right back to their old ways. And this just keeps happening. Just over and over and over and over. But listen, this is not just ancient Israelites. <laughs> this, is, this is our pattern as well. Right? We, we, something happens that's painful and we, we want a little dose of religion. And so we, it seems like we're coming back to God, but then it, 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 it's, it, it doesn't last. It's just, it's, it's very, very shallow. And then, and then when the pressure eases up, we're right back to our old ways. I'll never forget the Sunday after 9-11 because our church was packed, packed, and, and many of them were people that we had never seen before. And, and pastors all across our country, like me, wondered, is it, God, is this awakening? Or is this another awakening in our country? No, it was not another awakening. Because most of those people that we had never seen before, we were never going to see again. They had experienced something traumatic and painful, and they wanted a little bit of balm, they wanted a little dose of religion just to make them feel better for a Sunday, and that was it. That was the extent of it. And this became very personal for me after one of the services that day, when a young guy came up to me, and he had his, had his family with him, young family, and he was emotional, and I'll never forget, I can see his face, just my mind's eye like it was yesterday. He's like, Pastor, we, you know, we, we, know, I, we need God. We, we need God. We need God to anchor our family. We, we know we, we need him. And I was rejoicing with, with him. And I'll never forget following up with that guy that week. And it was like that conversation never happened. <laughs> it was like he was, he was never there. He was like so cold to me, didn't want anything to do. I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was a one, it was a one week kind of a thing. People wanted something just to make them feel a little better. And that was, and that was it. Our country did not change. Unless you were in the, the military who had to deal with a lot of changes in their lives. And we're so thankful for, for our military community, but, but unless you were in the, in, in the military or something like that, the, the main changes that happened after 9-11 were the ones that we saw at, at airports. It wasn't like lasting change in our culture. We just kept marching away from God. In fact, the pace of that march away from God probably even quickened. And, and see, that's what's, that's what's happened, happening in the Old Testament. It happens over and over and over People sinning, uh, they, they, they begin to experience some pain and some discipline from that. They, it seems like they're turning back to God. They're really not. And really the only turning that keeps happening is the turning of their backs 
on God. That's what he's talking about here in verse 17. And so we, we expect verse 18. Verse 17 concludes by saying they keep turning their backs. We almost expect the next sentence to be, and, and God was done with them. <laughs> God had had it. I've had it with human beings. I am over human beings. I am done. But what does verse 18 say? God says, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. God says, I've seen his ways. I know what people are like better than anybody. I know what they're like. I know what they're like in all of their sinning and all of their shallowness and all of their fakeness. I know exactly what they're like. I know better than anybody what they're like. I have seen his ways, comma, and we expect after the comma to be, and I'm done. I'm done. People are going to get what's coming to them. They're going to reap what they've sown. But what does God say? I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will heal him. This is amazing grace. In other words, God sees that people are so completely unable, so, so deeply sinful, so just deeply twisted, they are utterly incapable of saving themselves, utterly incapable of redeeming themselves. They can't get it together because the damage goes so deep, it's so severe so there's so much iniquity that, that they, they cannot, they cannot change themselves. So God says, I will do it. I will heal them. I will heal them. How does God do that? How does he do that? We, again, we saw this in chapter 53, right? Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. God sees we are so damaged and sinful, we are unable to heal ourselves. So what does he do? I will, I will heal them. I will heal them. How? I'm going to give my son to take on, to take on their darkness, to take on their depravity and their sin. To, uh, it, it, Christ has put it all on me. And the, and the penalty is paid so that we can be healed through his wounds. Look at the latter part of, of verse 18. God says, I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating words of praise. In other words, for those who mourn their sin, for those who humble themselves and seek refuge in, in God, God says, that I will restore comfort to, those, to these mourners, to those who mourn their sin and seek to take refuge in God. I will restore comfort, creating words of praise. In other words, God says, I'm going to take repentant people, people who mourn their sin, and I am going to create a new people, a people for my praise, a people for my glory. And those people are going to be composed from those, of those who are far, those who are near. What's he say in verse 19? The Lord says, peace, peace to, to the one who is far or near, and I will heal him. Now, Paul quotes 
this in Ephesians 2.17, when it says that he came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Paul is writing here to a church that's made up of, of Jews and Gentiles. And the, um, the, the, the Jewish people were people that had grown up with the Old Testament. They'd grown up worshiping the one true God. And so they were, they, they were kind of near and, and yet so far in other ways, but, but yet they were close to the truth. They weren't in the truth, but they were close to it. They, they had been kind of, they'd been raised around it. Some of you are like that. But then there are others in the congregation who were Gentiles and they'd grown up in families that were idol worshiping, pagan. They didn't have the Old Testament. They didn't know anything about the Bible. None of that. They were like far, far away. But yet God had created this one, one new people, one new people and brought them together in a new, in a new people, to be a new people, a new people for his praise and that's the church. So what does this mean for you? It means that whatever, whoever you are, whatever your background, whatever, whatever, the, whatever the stuff in your past is, whatever junk that's back there, I mean, whatever problems you've created for yourself, whatever train wrecks there are in your past, whatever, whatever debris and wreckage that there, that there is along the path, much of it of, of your own making, whatever is back there, Whatever is in your past, whoever you are, whatever your, whatever your job is, whatever your race is, whatever. Listen, every person is in the same boat ultimately. Sinners in need of a savior. And some people are perceived as close to others, but in reality, we're all in the same, the same boat. We all need a savior. We're sinners in need of a savior. Guess what? Christ came to, to bring peace to those who were perceived as near or, or far. It doesn't matter. We are sinners in need of a savior. You just come. Come to him. But for, for those who refuse to come, there is no peace. He says in verses 20 and 21, but the wicked are like the storm-tossed sea, for it cannot be still, and its water churns up mire and muck. There is no peace for the wicked, says my God. What an image. What an image. Think about the ocean. Just think about the restlessness that's there, the churning that's there. It, 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 it just it doesn't stop, right? Just churning, churning up. A storm-tossed sea just churning up mud and, 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 and debris and wreckage and mire. God says that trying to do life apart from him is like that. It's like that. It's restless. It can't be at peace. God invites you to come away from a storm-tossed life and find rest and peace in him by taking refuge in him. Augustine said this, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Father, we thank you for the open invitation to come to you and find our rest. Lord, thank you for the invitation of Jesus. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. 
Father, we, we pray for anyone who's here today, anyone who's listening or watching this message that needs to take refuge in you. Father, for people who don't know Jesus, we pray that you would grant repentance and faith right now to turn to Jesus and to trust him. Father, for those who have got issues in our lives that, that, are, that, are, that are hindering our relationship with you, God, give us the grace to repent of those things. May we, whether it's a broken relationship or whether it's habitual sin or whatever it is, the Lord, things that are hindering our walk with you, our fellowship with you, Lord, help us to turn toward you right now and trust you to remove every obstacle and make that way clear. But Father, I pray for people right now that, that, that need to take concrete steps toward you that Lord there would not be a delay there would not be a putting off there would not be procrastinating Lord that you would work in hearts and lives right now for your glory's sake and it's in the name of Jesus that we pray I hope you've been blessed by this message Christ is the answer for every need now and for all eternity as someone once said Jesus plus nothing equals everything everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving Father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. 